scripture reading today, there's two. I'm starting with Matthew 6, 19 to 26. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of, your, of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And Luke 12, 15, excuse me. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is the word of the Lord. All right, welcome to Trinity. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of our church. We are in a series that we have entitled Abide the Practices of Grace. And we're looking at the theme of simplicity today. Uh, we started with a vision Sunday about five or six Sundays ago that was all about just the, the theme from John 15 of abiding. Jesus is very direct in the Gospels, but he's also the ultimate realist. I'll say that a few times today. Jesus is so insightful. He's the ultimate realist. He says, if you want to grow, if you want a life of flourishing, connect yourself to me, period. He says, if you really want to grow, then you have to learn to abide in me. Not just admire me from afar, not just like me on paper. He says, you have to connect yourself to me. So then as a modern person, you say, well, I'm not one of the 12 disciples. I don't get to spend a lot of time with you, Jesus. We don't have a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. How do I connect myself to you? Well, he's given us specific ways to do that. He says, I want you to abide in me. And so then we have to think. We have to go into the scriptures and, and look at the ways in which God has given us these practices of grace to get near him. Somewhere around 16 or 17 years ago, I made a vow to love my wife for an entire lifetime. And I don't want to be content with a marriage that's average. I want to be content with a marriage that's beautiful, has its ups and downs. It's very human because we're two sinful people coming to the same space. But I've got to, I have to learn to abide with her. I have to practice certain things that are going to bring me into her orbit and into her heart so that I know her. Nobody who's made it to their 50-year anniversary and they are vibrant and glowing, they're little love bugs or whatever, they look like they just got married, do that without intentionality. Something happened in that marriage so that they would live life in an intimate way that brings them into orbit with one another and it's called deep love, deep intention and certain practices. 
those great marriages don't have to earn affection from each other. But there's no contract between them. There's a covenant between them. And the covenant between them says, come on in. Let's practice together from a space of love. And so each week before I've jumped into each practice, I have reminded this church of that. The human heart bends towards legalism, which means that we're going to cling onto a practice and say, in some way, in some fashion, it's going to earn me some spiritual brownie points with God. The reality is God has saved you in Jesus Christ before you ever did anything to deserve that, right? He has loved you, redeemed you, and brought you into his family. And because that is the case, you have been given salvation for a purpose, You're not just made a Christian for no reason, as if you're going to have some sort of Christian worldview. He gives you a Christian mind and a new heart so that you can live for his glory and you can live for the good of other people. That takes practice. That's the best stuff of Christianity. I want to call it Christianity at its finest. We are saved by grace for a purpose. And I am going to lean into that purpose by abiding with Jesus. And today we're looking at a unique practice called the practice of simplicity. I want to give a few disclaimers before I take you into Matthew 6 primarily. A few disclaimers as we get going. Let me say this. Talking about simplicity is hard. Just even to have the conversation. Talking about it is hard. Learning to practice simplicity for most people is even harder. This is a difficult concept and a difficult practice, especially in the place that we live. A few more. When we talk about the Bible's understanding of simplicity, we are not talking about a return to the good old days. That's not what this is about. Times were days when things were simpler. We are not advocating for a regression into the simpler days or eras that have already passed us by. The biblical understanding also has very little to do with images of, you ready? Homesteading, okay? You're like, oh, good. What kind of church is this? You're going to tell me to become a homesteader? No. It's also not about a minimal, chic, Scandinavian design aesthetic. God bless you, Ikea. We still love you. But that's not what the biblical mandate for minimalism or simplicity is about. We're also not talking about voluntary poverty, Poverty is something that the Bible says ought to be remedied. There are very few people who are called into a life of voluntary poverty. Simplicity is different than that. Jesus is not asking you to sell everything you have to become a missionary in Uzbekistan. But I guarantee you, this is a different sermon, he is calling you to use everything you have as a missionary in San Diego. Guarantee that. But he may not be calling you to sell everything you have and to go somewhere else. He might, but he might not. The practice of biblical simplicity also isn't the fantasy of a tidy Marie Kondo type of life, even though I am very compelled by her vision, all right? Love what she's doing. Keep only the things that bring you joy. Organize well. Sign me up. I'm in for that, all right? A writer by the name of Joshua Becker, I think he unpacks simplicity pretty well. He says that biblical minimalism or simplicity can be defined as the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. Getting a little bit closer, I think, but I think Richard Foster says it 
really well in Celebration of the Disciplines. He says, the Christian discipline of simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. That's what's going to drive us today. The Christian discipline of simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. What does that mean? This means that biblical simplicity is only an option where the heart has been captivated by the one thing that Jesus says truly matters. What is the one thing he says truly matters over and over again in the Gospels? The kingdom of God. I'm going to unpack that for us today. The kingdom of God, right? When the human heart and its search for meaning and purpose when it gets centered upon Jesus and his kingdom, when the complexity of life gets simplified around him, then this inner reality becomes an outer lifestyle. One without the other does not make sense. One without the other bends towards legalism. But a heart that's been so captivated by the simplicity of the one thing Jesus says you ought to devote your entire life to, what he says is this is your destiny. This is destiny language. There's one thing that Jesus says matters. He goes, it's the king and his kingdom. Build your life around that. Let that become the centerpiece of your heart. And when that happens, that simplicity will drive a particular type of life. So three things I'm going to walk you through are number one, more. Number two, first. And number three, less. We're just going to look at more, first, and less. All right? Matthew 6.19, under the first idea of more. Matthew 6.19, look there. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love this. It's very helpful. When Jesus talks about money, when he talks about economics, he's not a killjoy. Jesus, as I mentioned, he's the ultimate realist, which means that his vision of reality is the closest thing to the experience of each human life and each human soul. This is what it means to be a realist, that what I think and believe corresponds with what actually happens. So often if we're outside of Christianity, maybe you've been in Christianity for some time, you think about Jesus and money, you think that he's always saying no or give it all away. It feels as if it's a little bit of a damper. Let me say it's not. Jesus's vision for money and economics is so much more rich and robust than we could ever imagine. What he wants you to do is lean into his reality and test it. So we're going to do that a little bit today. Right? We're going to test what Jesus says and see how it corresponds with reality. But here's a couple of things that Jesus says along the way about finances, money, and investment. This is from Matthew 19, 24. He says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Do not think about the top 5% in this room. You are all rich according to biblical standards. Every single one of you, very, very wealthy. It's harder for us to enter into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What Jesus is saying is, unless I captivate your heart more than the treasure, you're going to follow the treasure more than you follow me. He's just being a realist. You can argue with him later. This is just what he's saying. It's hard. 
Second one, Luke 12, 33. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. What he says is even your best wardrobe is going to get eaten up. The things that you have invested in will not last forever. Rust is real, so is the moth. What are you investing in? It's just a realistic, honest question. Things break down, my kingdom never will. Where's your investment going? Mark 4, 19, he says, But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. I love this. What he's saying is, if you want to be a Christian and you hear the gospel preached to you, all of a sudden you might receive it with joy and think there's something to the Jesus thing. But all of a sudden your other life and your other worries and the things that you are already committed to, they come into your life and they steal the joy and they choke out The word of God in your life. He's just being honest. And then lastly, Luke 16, 13. Nobody can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. He's not saying it's disobedient. What he's saying is it's not an option for you to serve two masters. I didn't design the human heart that way. See what he's saying? He's just helping you understand who you are when he talks about these things that are very practical. A couple of modern commentators to add to Jesus. His are better. Mike Cosper, second. He says, Consumerism eclipses our view of God. It's a pseudo-religion. More than anything, it betrays a faulty view of ourselves. The false promises of consumerism is that it can resolve any sense of anxiety we might have about who we are and what we need to be happy and live a good life. So whether it's Sprite or a Ford truck or Under Armour clothing, each product offers some vision of the good life and satisfaction, but that satisfaction is always illusory and temporary. Another writer, Alison Schrager, in the Washington Post, she wrote this. It's become the conventional wisdom that the U.S. economy is built on Americans' endless appetites to buy lots and lots of stuff. Household consumption makes up about 67% of GDP. When the economy falters, we're told spending is our patriotic duty. Hmm. We live within a moment dominated by the theme of more, by what John Mark Comer has quipped as the American gospel, the gospel of more. He goes on to say this, it says, the more that you have, right, the happier you'll be. But, quote, shopping is now the number one leisure activity in America, usurping the place previously held by religion. Amazon.com is the new temple. The visa statement is the new altar. Double-clicking is the new liturgy. Lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses. Money is the new God. Enter Jesus, who says, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, like, be careful. He he offers a warning. He's a safeguard. He's putting up some rails. And some of us who are maybe outside of Christianity should stop and say something like, 
why the seriousness, Jesus? I mean, we just live in a material world. I'm just experiencing that which is good. I've earned the money. I'd like to spend it. Why are you cramping my style? Why are you making me feel guilty for where I put my money? Really what you're asking is, what's the real source of the problem? You're giving me a warning, but what's the issue? What's the source of the problem? And the Bible's answer to that, ready? It's simple, is the insatiable desire that's in every single human heart. That's it. Why are we after things? It's because there's something baked into your life that's insatiable. One writer said, you know what it would take for your soul to be satisfied in this world? Everything. You have an infinite soul and you have a finite body. And you are waiting for something to satisfy what's really going on inside of you. It would take every experience in the entire world for you to ever come close to satisfying what's going on inside of you. And then somebody should raise their hand and say, well, is that fair? Why did God make me in this way with this insatiable desire for more? The Bible's answer to that, I think, is also quite clear. He didn't make you like that. He made you with an infinite desire for himself, not for stuff. But when we abandon him as the centerpiece of who we are, then we're left with no other option than to go looking for something else to, to fill up that proverbial God-shaped hole in your life. I wish it wasn't so. Sometimes people go, are you telling me there's a God-shaped hole that only God can fill? I'm kind of like, yes. Yes, that's, that's kind of true. Like, that's what it means to be human. You're going to fill it up in some way. What you filling it up with? Has it made you happier? Has it made you more content? Man, it is always right there. The next thing, stuff, money, so easy to latch onto. But does it really fill us up? After World War II, the madmen of Madison Avenue, Rodeo Drive, they figured that out too, that there was something going on in the human heart and the human soul. No longer were they advertising for kind of practicality, to something that you needed. They started to appeal to the wants and desires in the human heart. And once they started to make money, once they tapped into that resource, then really they've decided to never leave. And the result is that you are no longer just buying a car you're buying social status, right? You're not just buying new clothes, but you are crafting an identity for the world to see who you really are. You're not just selecting a home to raise your family. You're framing a narrative around your place in the world. And let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with nice clothes or a beautiful home or a second or a third television. In fact, we know that Jesus actually had some nice clothes, because when they stripped him of his clothes, the people who were at the bottom of the cross, they didn't want to rip it. They didn't want to tear it. They said, this is unique. This is worth something. Let's cast some lots and see who gets to take it home. He wasn't wearing rags. He was wearing something nice. There's nothing wrong with nice things, but the American gospel of more has not made us any more happy. And I, instead of uh, this view, maybe potentially viewing this as a, um, a Christian statement against consumerism, I would love for you to consider it as an apologetic for the sacredness of the human soul. See, Jesus is the ultimate 
realist. I want you to lean into the validity of Jesus' version of reality. You are much too precious for a pair of shoes or a new TV or a little bit of real estate or a specific zip code to define your personhood. You see what he's saying? You're worth a lot more than that. He wants to give you what those things promise in part. He wants to give it to you in full. The American gospel of more is not more. So let's look at the second part. First, Matthew 6, a little bit later in that same chapter, verses 31 through 33. There Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew chapter 6, very important for you to note the context. This is the context of what's famously known as the Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most well-known and influential piece of ethical and moral teaching in the history of the world. This is some significant stuff. This is, in many ways, the heartbeat of Jesus' teaching. Now, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is working hard to describe the dynamics of life within his kingdom, within his kingdom reality and his kingdom framework. This is what the sermon is all about. Jesus is saying, if you were to live redemptively, if you live as if I'm your king, here's what life will look like. Now, if we zero in on this specific portion of Matthew chapter 6, you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about freedom. He's talking about anxiety and worry. He's talking about clothing and food. My point, those are all the things we love to talk about, blog about, post about. Very relevant topics. Worry, anxiety, what's coming, freedom, food, clothes, where to eat. These are the things that Jesus is addressing in this portion of Matthew chapter 6. But what he's zeroing in on is that human penchant for us to hold this nervous energy and to kind of lean into it for a sense of control and for a sense of power and for a sense of certainty in a world that doesn't always feel so certain. And what he is saying is don't allow your heart to be swept up into the lie that you won't have enough. That's what he's saying. Do not allow your heart to be swept up into the lie that you will not have enough. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't be anxious. Don't channel your life's energy into what am I going to eat, what am I going to drink, or what am I going to wear. He puts a unique phrase at the end. He says, the Gentiles seek after those things. What's that mean? What he's saying is people who aren't intimately connected to the Father, they might get preoccupied with that. But remember, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's what Jesus is saying, I think. He's saying that your father knows you need all of the physical basics. You need food. You need shelter. You need water. You need clothing. But your father also knows you need all of the spiritual basics. Validation. Approval. Status. Identity. A life spring of meaning. And your heavenly father loves you so much that he knows it's not going to come from that next pair of shoes or that beautiful item or that next thing you purchase. He knows it's not coming from those. But he says, I'd like to give you both. I would like to give you the basics. I would like to validate your life. I'm happy to give you food and shelter. I'm not a minimalist. 
God is not a minimalist. He goes, but I'd also like to fill your soul with the stuff that really matters. You have a God-shaped hole in your life. Don't fill it up over there. Let me fill it up for you. His solution is seek first the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, if you want to find what you're looking for, you can't seek your own kingdom first. If you want to find what you're really after, you can't seek your own kingdom first. He says it a little bit differently in the passage we read earlier, where he says, no one can serve two masters. What does that mean? He says, you're either going to seek my kingdom or your own. You're either going to be the master or I am. It just can't be both ways. This is what Jesus is saying. Think with me for a moment. Every king, every queen, every monarch has a kingdom. This is what it means to be a king. You have an area. You have a boundary line of your rule and your reign. If you go a little bit too far, there's probably a wall, and you step over that wall, you're in somebody else's kingdom. You've stepped over the boundary line of their rule and their domain. So for a follower of Jesus, we live within this moment of announcement that the kingdom of God is here. What does that mean? Jesus is telling us to seek first his kingdom. There's a boundary line. The king is here, that he set up this thing called his kingdom. Kings and kingdoms go together. For the Christian, it means that this announcement of the kingdom is right here and right now. His rule and authority are being established now. His good news is being announced now. The dynamics of his kingdom are being lived into right now. These include sins forgiven now. You are positionally seated in the family of God as a son or a daughter right now. We are counted and considered righteous because of the righteousness shared with us by Jesus Christ right now. We are living in the era of God with us, the Holy Spirit, a present in this room right here, right now. There's also a very significant component of the kingdom of God, which is considered the not yet. There are things that are present in this kingdom. There are things that are not yet fully consummated in this kingdom, which means that there are a couple things I'm still waiting on. I don't see Jesus face to face. I'm not fully present with God the Father. I'm not in heaven with him for eternity. And there are still a few barriers to life in this planet. Sin, death, our enemy. These are things that I'm waiting to be defeated. I'm waiting for full resurrection. This is the not yet part of the kingdom. But you know what Jesus said when he came to this planet? He says, the kingdom of heaven is now breaking in here. A Christian is somebody who lives in the kingdom of God and says that the boundary lines of Jesus' authority have been drawn and they include my life. They include my heart. They include my mind. They even include my money, my time, and my stuff. See that? And this is where this inner reality drives an outer lifestyle. The center of my being is a king. He's got power. He is strong. He is faithful. But on the other hand, he's also tender. He's mercy. He's loving. He's kind. He is not a tyrant, nor is he weak. And his kingdom of agape love is expanding. And the boundary lines include me. 
I'm part of that. Because I have a divine center, namely this king and his kingdom, I don't have to attach myself to stuff. Here's how Richard Foster put it. The central point for the discipline of simplicity is not to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of his kingdom first, and then everything necessary will come in his proper order, or is to seek, excuse me. It is impossible to overestimate the importance of Jesus' insight at this point. Everything hinges upon maintaining the first thing as first. Nothing must come before the kingdom of God, including the desire for a simple lifestyle. Nothing else can be central. The desire to get out of the rat race cannot be central. The redistribution of the world's wealth cannot be central. The concern for ecology cannot be central. Seeking first God's kingdom and the righteousness, both personal and social, of that kingdom is the only thing that can be central in the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Listen, Jesus gave up his life to give you access to his kingdom. How many of you would sacrifice yourself or your children in order to provide something second rate for anybody else who's going to tap into it? Anybody here? Jesus is offering you the best. The best thing possible. He goes, I gave up my life to bring you into this kingdom. I have given up everything to make you part of the boundary line. I am so delighted to have you live your life within my sphere of influence. Let me orient you in all things. Don't seek after that first. Make it second, third, fourth, whatever. Seek the kingdom first. And when that becomes the simple center, simplicity flows from there. Let me take you quickly to the third part. More, first, and less. Look at Matthew 6, 19. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what he's saying. Find the treasure and you will find the heart. Isn't that beautiful? and scary, and indicting, and illumining, and glorious. Find the treasure, and you will find the heart. Locate what someone really treasures, what they really value, and you will find their heart, right? Which means their loves, their center. We pour resources into what we most treasure. And the more Jesus becomes your greatest treasure, the more your resources will be positioned around his kingdom. And listen, the more that Jesus gets a hold of your heart, giving you in full what stuff can only promise in part, the more your heart will lean into simplicity. You see the connection? In the way that Jesus becomes more, it exposes the less that you need. I thought I needed all of that stuff to give me an identity. I thought I needed that home. I thought I needed that third, fourth, or fifth thing. I'm not here to indict you for having more than one thing. The point is, is the kingdom at the center of your life? Is the king the center of your heart? Has his boundary line, does it include all of you, like all of your stuff, everything, your next purchase, all of it? I mean, Jesus is a king. He doesn't say, give me part of your time on Sundays, but you know, the rest of it is part of your boundary line. Christians, I'm talking to the Christians for a moment. We have to stop living like that. 
He's too good. He's too faithful. Your life will be too compromised. You will always wonder, I thought the gospel was supposed to be good. I never fully felt it. It's because you've been living in your own kingdom. You have been seeking his kingdom, second, third, fourth, or fifth, not first. You see, in the principle of abiding is saying, come on in, test him for what he said, see if the kingdom is good. You will not figure it out on your own. You got to come around a group of people who say, we are here to pursue him. I want to get rid of the clutter in my soul. <laughs> when the clutter of my soul gets fixed, when the simplicity of Jesus as the center becomes fixed, man, everything else starts to fall in place. This is called the order of our loves. That's what Christianity is all about. The ordering of your loves. Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a hypothetical question that each of us has to wrestle with. When he says that, is it just a spiritual reality or could it be that Jesus is asking us to deny certain physical pleasures that we have the right to be able to take into our life in order to have more space to celebrate his kingdom? Could it be that when he says deny yourself, it actually might mean stuff? I want to say probably, probably. John Stott's three principles. He's a great preacher. He was a great teacher. He had a lot of money. And he was renowned for giving it all away. And here's what he lays out as the principles for freedom around our stuff and our money. He says, ask these questions. What can I reduce? What can I eliminate? What can I limit in my lifestyle that would enable me to invest intentionally and sacrificially in the growth of Christ's church? Read it again. What can I reduce, eliminate, or limit in my lifestyle that would enable me to invest intentionally and sacrificially in the growth of Christ's church? Great question. You know, Jesus put it like this. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's talking about an investment strategy. My dad likes to say to people, he's a little more old school than me, he likes to say, we're kingdom people. We're kingdom people, which simply means is our mindset around the kingdom of God and what God is doing in our planet right here, right now, through the advance of Jesus' spirit with us. He's doing things. Are we investing in that way? Let's go after that. That's where flourishing happens. That's where the good stuff happens. This is what sharing is all about. This is about an intentional plan for consumption. It's about letting Jesus have access to here so that it drives an outer lifestyle. A hard thing to talk about, an even harder thing to practice, but such freedom can come as we lean into the simplicity of the kingdom of God being first. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life and your generosity to us. It is somewhat fascinating to think about the life that you lived. You're described as somebody who did not have a home, a bed, or a pillow. We don't know how many pairs of shoes you had in your closet. It doesn't really matter. We know how many outer tunics you had. We know that you were simple. We know that you used your entire life to make much of the kingdom of God. Lord, we want to be like that. 
there's just this sense that within Christianity, we, we view the world differently. We view our money, our time, our things a bit differently. Let's be honest, a lot differently because of the arrival of Jesus on our planet. When he becomes more, things become less. And the insatiable desire to have something at the center of our soul is finally met. This does not mean that Christians don't have aches and longings and groans. We certainly do. But then the Spirit of God comes in and says, the real ache is for me. When you purchase that next thing, just be reminded, I will make your soul happy. I have given you resources to use. Use them well. Use them wisely. Have a spirit of sharing. Draw the line where you need to draw the line. Put me first. Help us to do that. Help us to lean into the practice of simplicity. That the kingdom of God is primary. I'm not wondering what's at the center of my life. What relief comes from that? And because of that inner dynamic, there's a lifestyle that follows. So Jesus, use us to bless a world in need. In your name we pray.